This morning we're picking things up in Acts chapter 11. The Lord willing, we'll finish out the chapter this morning. And last week, remember, we saw Peter going back to Jerusalem after having been in Caesarea where Cornelius and a house full of Gentiles heard the gospel. They believed uh, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them to the astonishment to, of Peter and the, the six uh, Jewish believers there with them. And the Lord really opened the door, opened their understanding really to the fact that anyone could call upon the name of the Lord. Remember the Lord was bringing them from being New Covenant, uh, from being Old Testament, uh, you know, uh, an Old Testament mindset to the mindset of New Covenant believers. And really showing them that, listen, the way to God is directly through Jesus Christ. It's not through uh, Judaism. It wasn't through circumcision. Uh, it wasn't through the law. The Lord fulfilled the law. And then indeed, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so after that happening uh, happened, word got to Jerusalem that these Gentiles had put faith in the Lord. Peter shows up there, and they're upset with them that he had not only uh, shared the gospel with these Gentiles, but had dined with them and so forth. So he shared the whole account from the beginning how the Lord supernaturally unfolded all these events, how the Lord had confirmed what had happened through Scripture. And beautifully, we saw the apostles and the brothers there in Jerusalem really humble their hearts and have a change of mind, really come to a place of repentance in regarding those things. And we see a great turning point in church history, a great turning point in the book of Acts, where now the gospel would begin to be taken to Gentiles all over the known world at that time. And here we are 2,000 years later with the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached on a Sunday morning on Portola Road. You know, the Lord knows what he's doing. This morning as we pick these things up, we're going to see the gospel continuing and, and, and really beginning to get spread mightily now to uh, many, many Gentiles. In fact, we're going to see that there was a group of Jewish believers that still hadn't heard of what happened in Caesarea, and they weren't as uh, embedded into old uh, covenant thinking, and just on the pressing of the Lord, they just said, man, we're going to share the gospel with these, these Gentiles, and we're going to see that the Lord was with them in that, and God abounded them in that, and we're going to see many coming to the Lord again, and uh, in Antioch especially, where they're first called Christians. We're also going to talk about, you know, at our conscience and serving God, uh, the great grace of God, several different things here in our text. And I think they're all going to knit together well, and hopefully we'll leave here built up and encouraged in the Lord. So I do want to this morning read through the text together, <clears throat> verse 19 down to verse 30, and then uh, make our way down through this, and hopefully we'll leave here built up and encouraged in the Lord Jesus. So notice verse 19. It says, now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephan traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 22. The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he had come, he had seen 
the great or the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Verse 25. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in those days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world. Which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his own ability, determined to send relief to the brother dwelling in Judea. Thus they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now notice here up in verse 19, it says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, or Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. Now remember the Lord had commissioned the church, the early church, and were commissioned as well, to take the gospel out for them not only to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, but to the uttermost parts of the earth, to all nations. Uh, We've been called to do that as well, to take the gospel to our Jerusalem, which would be the North County here, to Judea, maybe some could say that would be our state, Samaria, maybe you would say that's kind of our nation, out to the uttermost parts of the earth to be praying for the gospel to be going forward. If we can't physically to go, uh, you know, to, to maybe be helping certain ministries that are out beyond our borders, and we do that with missions that we're involved with and so forth as a church, they have been commissioned to do that, but they had not done that. And in not doing that, the Lord recognized he needed to stir them up to help them along in obeying the Lord and heeding the word of God. Aren't you God, glad that at times... God helps us along. He prods us and so forth. And he did that through this persecution that was raised up against them. He allowed a persecution to be raised up to scatter them out. And we're reminded here that that started with Stephen, who was a deacon, who was a table waiter, who wasn't just one to clean tables and distribute food and serving the Lord. And listen, that's a wonderful way to serve the Lord. But this was a man who shared scripture. This is a man who preached Jesus as he served those tables. He was a man whom the Lord worked through mightily in bringing forth miracles and signs and wonders and so forth. And we see that there was a group of the synagogue of the freedmen that They didn't receive the things that Stephen was saying. In fact, they were quite upset with them. They were hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there in Acts 6.10 it says, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And listen, the wisdom that he brought was the word of God and the spirit by which he spoke was the Holy Spirit of God. So what did they do? They had to move in the occult. The occult is when you move in secret, you move in darkness, you move at the prodding of the enemy of our soul, the flesh, the world. And notice, they introduced men secretly. They made up lies. 
They brought an accusation against Stephen that wasn't true. They said he spoke blasphemous words against Moses and God, which was not true. It says they stirred up the people, and then they came and they seized him. And we saw a number of weeks back that Stephen responded by, again, preaching the gospel to him. He didn't waffle. He didn't waver. He moved forward. He preached Jesus to them. He said, you're like your fathers who were stiff-necked towards God. And as they rejected the prophets, you have rejected Christ by hanging him on the tree. But he rose from the grave. And what did they do? Remember, they picked up stones to kill him. And as they were doing that, he saw heaven open up. And he asked the Lord to forgive them. Man, what a model for us to follow in forgiving others. He asked the Lord to forgive them. And he saw again the Lord standing at the right hand of the Father. Stephen was welcomed up into glory. Meanwhile, Saul, who was a young man, approved of what was going on. They had laid the garments of those that were there, a part of the stoning at his feet. And then from there, what happened? Saul went forth and he wreaked havoc on the church. He really stirred up this great persecution against the body of Christ. We read about that in Acts 8, 1 through 3. And these verses are there in your text. I'm just kind of referring to them this morning. But it says a great persecution. Again, after Stephen was martyred, this great persecution arose against the church. And what happened? They were all scattered. And listen, from man's perspective, from the enemy's perspective, it would look like the church was losing. But God had his hand in these things. The Lord was allowing these things to happen to get the church scattered, to get the gospel out, to get them walking in the blessings of evangelism and missions and so forth, to get the gospel out to Samaria, to begin to move things around, to get the gospel out to the Gentiles, to get the gospel out to the four corners of the earth. So again, he wreaked havoc on the church. It says he entered every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And how amazing that the man that did this would soon have his own experience going to Damascus to try to hunt these people down when the Lord Jesus Christ would meet him along the way. And remember, we just read about him. Barnabas would eventually go seek him in Tarsus to say, hey, come help me with this work. All these Gentiles are getting saved and so forth. Isn't it amazing how God orchestrates events and blows us away so many times in bringing forth things that we never thought could happen? I love the fact that he does that. So again, Saul was part of that great persecution. They begin to be scattered. We read about Philip, who was also a deacon, also a waiter, who moved into evangelism. He went down to Samaria. We read in Acts 8, again, verse 5, that he preached Christ to those in Samaria, and great multitudes of one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. A great revival started there. And I love it because it goes on to say, as a result of the gospel being preached and received, listen to this this morning, great joy was found in that city. Do you know the Lord today? Can you say amen to that? Well, listen, great joy is found in our Lord. You know that. And it's so important that we do not let the enemy of our soul come in and take away the joy of the Lord. We see all kinds of things, listen, trying to be stripped from us in this day that we are living in. 
but you know what can't be stripped from you is your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, the presence of the Lord in your life as a follower of the Lord. And listen, the joy of the Lord can't be taken from us. That takes us forfeiting that. But I refuse to allow the enemy to steal the joy of the Lord from me because I know his promises are yes and amen. I know God is going to be faithful to me. God's going to be faithful to you. He's faithful to his people. God's working things out for our good, for his glory. And we need to stand in those promises and give praise to God. And let me tell you as well this morning, if you don't know the Lord, salvation is waiting for you today through faith in Jesus Christ. Times of refreshing are waiting for you through faith in Jesus Christ. And the joy of the Lord is waiting for you through the work of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, whoever would call upon his name would be saved. Whoever would recognize that they are sinners, that Christ is the Savior, that he died on the cross and rose from the grave, and salvation is found through him when we put our trust and our hope in him. Listen, not only does he want to wash you, but again, he wants to give you a joy unspeakable and full of glory. So all of these things were unfolding. We've looked at a bunch of other things that have happened as well between Philip and Samaria to where we are. We've talked about Peter there in Caesarea, these first Gentiles getting saved. In the meantime, it says in our text that others went as far as Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon, right north of Israel, Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean Sea, and it's still Cyprus today, and then Antioch, which is in the very southern part of Turkey, right under Lebanon. I know some of you guys got maps in your mind. Others are like, it's just, it's just cities. I have no idea. But listen, the gospel began to spread out. But it says they only initially brought the gospel to the Jews. And remember, that was part of early church protocol. You just take the gospel to the Jews. It wasn't biblical. The Lord already told them to go to all nations. On the day of Pentecost, again, a prophetic word was given to Peter as he quoted the prophet Joel, who said, in that day, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But God was being patient with them. God was beginning to open their eyes to these things. Now listen, we're going to get to this group here in a second that just said, you know what, we're being pressed to share the gospel with these Gentiles. And they did that, and the hand of God was with them. But one thing I want to point out here again As a result of this persecution, as a result of this scattering, the church was multiplied greatly. And there's something that I call God's math. And it goes against, again, the logic of the world and the enemy and fallen man. Oftentimes, the thought is, you know what, for the church to grow, the church must be in a prosperous, wealthy position and so forth. And yes, God absolutely can bless in those places. But those places also can be dangerous because we have a tendency as men to oftentimes put trust in what we can see versus God who we can't see, who has blessed us with what we can see. And oftentimes the church can move into a place where they are prosperous from being dependent upon the Lord to being, you know, dependent on the things that they have, and they become like the Laodicean church that says, we are wealthy and rich and have need of nothing. And you know what happens? Leaven in that church produces more leaven, and the next thing you know, you have an apathetic, lukewarm church, much like 
much of Christendom today in the West and many parts of the world. But see, there's another part of that math in that throughout the scriptures, when you see the church being persecuted and scattered, you know what happens? You see the church genuinely multiplying. You see this in many parts of the world today. And I touch on this often, that in the places where the church is most persecuted in the world, it's where we see the biggest revivals happening. In the Middle East, where Christianity is illegal. And not just illegal in the sense of you can't meet inside. Not that. Not in the sense of... uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of restrictions we see, you know, it being enforced and, and brought today here in the West. But, you know, it's, if you're a Christian, you're going to go to jail, a reconditioning camp, or you might lose your life. And yet the greatest revivals are happening in those places. And see, there, there's a math that doesn't work in the world, but in Christianity, you see it where if you persecute 10 Christians, you know what you get? You get 20 more. And if you, t- you kill two Christians, what do you get? You get 50 more. And you see it throughout the word of God. You see it in the world today. And listen, there are some that have been suggesting lately, and I've heard some voices that I respect speaking along these lines, and they're not being prophetic. They're not claiming to be prophetic. But many are kind of thinking that is the only hope for our nation, is the only hope for a real revival, persecution against the church is that the only thing that's gonna be able to bring that about now listen god can bring that forth any way that he wants because he's good but oftentimes again in acts in church history we see the thing that stirs up the church is when the church is persecuted when they're scattered like this why because when that happens that's when people quit playing church and they really start walking with the lord jesus christ when you got to be dependent upon them every single day. Now, that's not to say that we can't do that in the midst of, again, abundance and prosperity and so forth. But we better be determined to do so because oftentimes, again, those things can begin to lead our heart to stray from worshiping the blessings versus the blesser. Let's not fall into that trap because look around this morning. We might be saying, well, we're persecuted people right now. We're a blessed people. Look at us out here this morning. We have abundant blessings from God, and we need not be ashamed of any of them, provided we're giving glory to God in that, and we're being good stewards of those things. But to bring about 2 Chronicles 7.14, which I really don't see happening on a mass scale, it may take this little persecution that we're seeing right now stirred up all the more. I'm not prophesying in it. But I'm throwing this out because I know the Lord loves our nation. And I know the Lord loves the church in America despite all of our shortcomings and so forth. He loves us. He shed his blood for us. And I know he's wanted to see souls saved as sometimes the way that, again, he'll stir up the church is by putting it through a bit of a fire. But notice 2 Chronicles 714, it says, if my people called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, all here from heaven will forgive their sins and heal their land. And are we seeing that on a grand scale? A humbling of the heart, praying, seeking the face of God, and turning from our wicked ways? I hear some people say, oh, we need to pray. How many are praying? I don't know. 
But these other three things, I don't hear a lot about them. I don't hear a lot of people saying, we need to humble our hearts. We need to confess our sin. We need to turn from our wicked ways, the things in our own lives personally that aren't pleasing to God, that are grieving the work of the Holy Spirit, that are giving you know, the, the, the enemies of our soul spiritually room to come in and to attack us. Are we really seeking God's face as he's called us to? And I'll tell you, when the church gets persecuted, all four of those things start falling in line. One after another, very easily, they just unfold. Now, some in hearing this might be thinking, well, listen, you know, this is America, though. We were founded on Christian principles. We must be above these things, and yet we are not. Jesus said in John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And so let's remember that. Listen, this isn't me saying, let's pray for persecution. It's not me even saying, you know, and oh boy, hopefully we're persecuted. I don't think we're supposed to have that mindset. But at the same time, we are seeing the beginnings of some genuine persecution in the West. It's nothing like those in the Middle East and in some of those Eastern countries and so forth. But these things may get multiplied. Listen, when you have a governor of a state who just signed into law, and he did yesterday, a law easing up on the ramifications or the penalties of child molesters and pedophilia, boy, that's when the fear of God has definitely 100% left Sacramento. And so moving in that direction, you know what that's being driven by? Not just a spirit of perversity, but that's being driven by a spirit of antichrist and so this is in part it's on my heart in part to share this this morning to stir our hearts to recognize listen if these things increase we shouldn't necessarily look at it as a curse on us because it's not perhaps it could be a gift from god to stir our hearts because listen our time here is short and you know what the things are going to last the things are going to last are the things that we do unto the lord jesus christ and souls, and so forth. And so we want to be a people that are prepped for these things, a people that are equipped for these things, a people that don't faint when these things unfold, but step, instead can step back. And remember, Jesus said, they persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. And let's remember, they scouted the church in Acts, but what came as a result of it? A great move of God. And listen, in the world today, I look around, and I see a lot of evil things unfolding at the hand of many people in high places. But I know this, what the enemy means for evil, God will use for good. And we see that going on here in Acts on a grand scale. Verse 20 says, But some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And this is glorious. Many times I'll say, but praise God for but. That word there, hey, this is happening, but God. But God was doing this. And these folks from Cyprus and Cyrene, they were believers in the Lord. But no doubt they weren't as indoctrinated and set on their conscience concerning the things of the old covenant. They were farther out from the heart of those sayings in Jerusalem And it seems they were in a place to be more easily led by the Lord in faith because the word had been given to take the gospel out to all nations to begin to break out again of this 
shadow to walk in the substance of Christ and begin to share the gospel with Gentiles, these Hellenist Greek Gentiles, and preach Jesus Christ to them. Because really, what was holding the early church back from taking the gospel to Gentiles? It wasn't the word of God. Again, the word had been given to make disciples of all nations. There in Matthew 28, 19. And again, in Acts 2, 21, the prophet Joel was prophesied or, you know, it brought forth, his words were brought forth of Pentecost through the Holy Spirit working through Peter. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They had been commissioned already to do that. Why hadn't the apostles and those Jerusalem did that? Because their conscience was holding them back from taking the gospel forward. Again, the sheet came down three times with all the animals in it. And the Lord says to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. The Lord had already, again, told them it was lawful to eat all things. He said, oh, no, Lord, I have never. His conscience was telling him, you can't do that when God was saying, you should and you can. And we need to make sure that our consciences, which are a good thing, are being shaped by the word of God, that they're not being seared by sinful things and the things of the world, and also that they are not being warped through illegalism or through what we deem what's right and what's wrong versus what God's word says. Just kind of thinking of an illustration for this and, uh, you know, to help us understand it. And this would be something more of conscience than command. I remember being an early Christian, coming to the Lord as a young man and coming to him uh, a- after having been grown up in, in a rap and hip-hop culture where I was inundated, you know, with the thinking of the world presented through, you know, what the, 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 the mentality of fallen men that, you know, it rhymed to beats and so forth. And God delivering me and bringing me to himself and um, moving me from one who just listened to that music to begin to compose it and write it and put it together. I remember it was a two, three weeks after I wrote my first Christian rap song. As some of you guys know, I used to be a Christian hip-hop artist, rapper, whatever. That's kind of how I got started in ministry. And writing a, a, a little, you know what, one bar set of lyrics and getting an opportunity at a, at a bonfire one night with a bunch of uh, people around my age. And someone said, I heard you wrote a rap song. Can we hear it? I'm like, you know, okay, well, whatever. And I, I busted out the rap. I don't remember it. I'm not going to rap for you this morning. And, and I remember being blown away because, man, everyone's attention and they were listening. And then afterwards, I had more than one come up to me and wanted to talk to me about the Lord. And they told me how the lyrics of that acapella, you know, what rap that I just gave impacted their hearts. And the Lord began to move me into ministry through hip-hop music and so forth. I began to write songs and, you know, I got equipment and so forth and got some counsel from people that were already in this. And at the time, listen, all the churches were singing Jesus rock. You know, they had their drums and their guitars and, you know, basses and so forth. And they were singing Jesus rock. They'd moved away from hymns and acapella, which 
listen, in all honesty, we'd be better off if Jesus Rock probably never even came. But listen, uh, to them, because some doors begin to open, but other churches were very standoffish. Even though the message was rooted in truth, it was very gospel-centered, the lyrics were very, you know, doctrinally sound and so forth, but to them, the idea, even though they were about Jesus Rock, the idea of rap music was just pure evil to them because it was kind of the height of gangster rap and so forth but see for me i had no problem with it whatsoever my conscience was as clear as could be because i had just moved from listening to the most foul filthy catalog of music probably anyone had in north county with my 30 speakers in my low rider truck yes i was the one that you used to hate that would pull up behind you at a at a stoplight and the Lord had also used, you know, there, were, there was, this was the beginning of all this. There was a few guys that already had albums out. And God had used that music to impact me as a young man. Not so much, uh, you know, at the quality of the music, but just the fact these were guys my age standing for the Lord. And I didn't know anyone my age that was doing that. And it was something that began to pull up my heart and the Lord began to press on me. Listen, they are, you can. They're walking with me, you can. They're being bold for me, you can. And so again, for me, this is Christian, this is godly. And this is probably more of an area of conscience. If your conscience says, listen, I'm not in that, well, whatever. But my point being is that I had a freedom in the Lord of, listen, I got a complete clear conscience in this because of what I came out with. And so if you don't want to embrace that, that's fine. And and I understood that. But someone needs to take the gospel out to the people that I came from And this is the perfect vehicle to get in and drive and bring the gospel to them. I had a clear conscience in it when others didn't. Sadly, a lot of those churches at the time that didn't want me to come in and do Christian rap, now they're embracing uh, homosexual theologies and so forth, which are completely biblical. And I thought, man, you guys swung way over here. Now you're completely out of biblical grounds and so forth. It's, It's just heartbreaking to see. And see, with these guys, again... This wasn't just a matter of conscience. This was a command to get the gospel out to all the world. But these from Cyprus and Cyrene, their conscience was as bogged down with, again, the old covenant because they weren't so close to Jerusalem. And they were in a place where, no doubt, the Lord began to press on their hearts to take the gospel out to the Gentiles. They must have been recalling the words of the Lord to take the gospel out to all nations. And they finally just said, you know what, to heck with it. We're going to preach the gospel to these Hellenists, to these Greeks. They hadn't got word that Jews or the, the Gentiles had begun to get saved. They said, we're going for it. We're going to follow the Lord. And again, let's make sure that our consciences are following the Lord, that they're not being seared by, again, the things of the world. And a conscience can do that where blatant sin becomes just routine. Titus 1.15 says, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. And you see this. With people that get so hardened to the things of God, that doesn't just happen. That happens 
when day after day they reject the word of God and they embrace sin and their heart begins to get hardened towards God and their conscience gets seared and defiled. Listen, if that's you today, you need to bring that before the Lord and ask God to begin to rip off those calluses so that you can have a conscience that's sensitive to the word of truth and the Holy Spirit. But again, this can also happen in areas where people believe Things are upright that are not upright. Things that contradict God's word. A great example of this is 1 Timothy 4.1. It says, now the Spirit expressly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, give heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And notice here, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. And so he's talking here about a conscience of a religious person, you could say, who thinks forbidding people from being married and commanding them not to eat meat is a right and upright thing before God. Now listen, if in your conscience you have a call to singleness and you want to be a vegetarian, praise God. But when you run around forbidding and commanding, now your conscience, it goes against the word of truth. You see the difference between the two? And we need to make sure we don't fall into that. Because there's oftentimes Christians, they get into a place where their conscience contradicts the word of God. When it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, they would never share with anybody that you're a sinner and you're damned to hell. Because that might offend somebody. And my conscience tells me I shouldn't offend anybody. You know what the word says? That we're to preach the good news to everybody. And to have good news, you also have to have bad news. Otherwise, it's just news. The Bible tells us that the gospel is an offense to those who perish. And so if your conscience is saying, well, I want to be Mr. Good Guy and I want everyone to love me, that contradicts the word of God. And you need to put that in check. I'm going to knock over my pulpit up here. Listen, if, if you know, we got to call the stand for what's true and, up, and upright and be bold about the things of God. And some people in their conscience says, well, I don't want to do that because I'll be unlike and I'll be unpopular. And surely the mark of a successful Christian is everyone loves you and they applaud you. And here comes the ticker tape parade when I come in the room. But the truth, again, of God's word is if you're going to walk with Jesus, you're going to have some resistance. You're not necessarily going to be the most popular person. In fact, the Bible says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Does your conscience tell you that, to embrace that? It should. But how many times do our conscience lie to us about these things? And the list goes on and on. There's so many things that fall under this, especially in this day where heresy, and as we just read, you know what, men departing from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons is running amok. Let's make sure our conscience lines up with God's word. And when it does it, we ask God to come put our conscience in check and we get it shaped by the word of truth. And these men right here, they were being pressed by the Lord and they said, we're going to follow the call to take the gospel to all nations. And look what came as a result of it. Verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Isn't that awesome? As they followed the word of truth, not the conscience, 
of even the apostles. And again, they were a work in progress as well. And God was showing them these truths. But as they stepped out in faith and they said, we're going to follow the word. We're going to follow the unction and the direction of the Holy Spirit. The hand of the Lord was with them. Man, I want to walk in things where the hand of the Lord is with me. As a church for us to walk where the hand of the Lord would be with us. And this is a picture again. Listen, we're always in God's hands, but this is a picture of God's hand blessing what they were doing. It's a wonderful thing when the hand of the Lord is with you in what you're doing. Just a few examples here, uh, you know, to encourage us to want the hand of the Lord uh, with us. And again, wanting to be walking in conjunction with the Lord. It's really the same thing. Notice Ezra 8, 18, it says, Then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us men of understanding. And we see again through the hand of God in the day of Ezra, there was a great need. What happened? God brought provision that was needed. I think of 2 Chronicles 30, 12, it says, And also the hand of God was on Judah and gave them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. Listen, the hand of the Lord when it's with us, it empowers us to obey the call of God. And listen, the hand of the Lord... The hand of the Lord is the hand that saves. Isaiah 59, 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. Again, the hand of the Lord saves all who call on his name. And how ironic that the hand of the Lord was pierced for us so that we can be saved. He loves us so much. He bore our sin on the cross. And as a result of them stepping out of faith, following the word, not their conscience, the hand of the Lord was with them. And then secondly, it says, a great number believed and turned to the Lord. They didn't just say, yeah, we believe, but their profession of faith was seen to be genuine and that their lives changed. They repented. They turned from the way they were thinking and walking to turn to the way of the Lord. And God's called us to do this. Mark 1.14 says, now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Notice, repent and believe in the gospel. They really go hand in hand. Repentance and faith in the Lord go hand in hand. Because when you put faith in the Lord, You're saying, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. And that means you're repenting or turning from whatever your Lord is to turn to Jesus to ask him to be your Lord. And indeed, listen, many believed, many turned to the Lord as these men were led by the Lord versus a conscience that was contradictory to the Lord. Now, verse 22 says, then news of these these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And this is wonderful. Basically because, again, in Jerusalem, they had a change of heart. They had heard the report of the Gentiles getting saved in Caesarea. And they said, wow, then the Gentiles can receive salvation as well. And they marveled. And so they had gotten that report. These guys here uh, in, in Antioch, they, they had not brought that report or they hadn't heard that report 
And so now news comes in another report of more Gentiles getting saved. And you see that the change of mind they expressed to Peter was genuine. And that not only were they rejoicing in it, but they said, let's send out Barnabas to go minister to him. I love it. Let's send out a top guy. Let's send out, again, Barnabas, the encourager, to go down and help these Gentile believers get established in their faith in the Lord. And that's the fruit of repentance on their behalf. Now notice verse 23. And when Barnabas came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. That's a glorious scripture right there. And encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. When we see the grace of God, that should be something that we utterly rejoice in. That we give praise God in. Listen, the grace of God is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing. The grace of God, God's unmerited favor. And when Barnabas showed up there, he was so rejoicing that he saw the grace of God all over these Gentiles. That he saw a move of God there, a work of the Lord. Listen, the grace of God is a glorious and a wonderful thing that God wants to pour out more and more upon our lives. Not just that grace that comes when we get saved, but he wants us to be found growing in the grace of God. The grace of God, again, not only saves us, but it's a divine influence in our life to help us abound in the Lord. Real quickly, I want to look at some of the things that the grace of God does, and I'm going to read through this very quickly. Very quickly touch on how we can grow in the grace of God and then we'll finish out our text here together. But if you are a list writer downer, this is great for you. I know some of you guys like lists. I think I have the list there in your notes. But this is just a few of the things that the grace of God brings into our life. First of all, again, it brings salvation. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Not just faith in anything. Well, that's a person of faith. Listen, if your faith isn't in Jesus Christ, that's not the faith of the Bible. We're saved by the grace of God when we put faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That saves us. Is your faith in Christ today? Can you say amen to that? Then listen, you are a partaker of the grace of God and you are born again. We we don't deserve that. We're sinners, rebellious against God, deserving of hell. And yet Christ shed his blood, rose from the grave, that through faith in him we receive his grace. Now we're covered by the blood of the Lamb. We're under the grace of God. We're no longer under the law that damns us, but under grace that saves us. Barnabas showed up and he saw the grace of God, and he said, glory to God, the grace of God is here amongst these Gentiles. But the grace of God doesn't stop there. Listen, the grace of God empowers us to share our gifts with fellow believers and the gospel with non-believers. Notice Acts 4.32. Now the multitude of those who believe were of one heart, one soul. Neither did anyone say any of the things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And notice, and great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them. And as they received grace, grace abounded to them. And they said, we want to share what we have with one another, our Christian brothers, 
And we want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with non-believers. Grace builds us up on earth and builds our inheritance in heaven. Acts 20, 32, so now, brethren, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you inheritance among those who are sanctified. So again, grace builds us up here on earth in our walk with the Lord, and grace builds an inheritance in glory where one day we will be. Notice number four, through grace we have everlasting consolation in heaven and good hope on earth. We need hope on the day that we are in, do we not? Listen, the grace of God allows hope to abound in our life. 2 Thessalonians 2.16 Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us an everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. And then grace is available to help us in our time of need. We get help through the grace of God. Is anyone in a time of need this morning? Well, God wants to lavish us with his grace. Hebrews 4, 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may attain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we can go boldly to the throne of grace to get grace to help us in our time when we need grace. And then grace empowers us to serve God with reverence and godly fear of the Lord. Notice Hebrews 12, 28, therefore, Since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably and with reverence and godly fear. Do you want to bound in serving the Lord? Do you want to bound in the fear of God? We should desire that as Christians. Well, that comes through grace. Give us more grace, that favor to walk in this glorious place. And then grace establishes as well our heart and truth. Hebrews 13, 9, do not be carried away with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. So that would be a legalistic stance versus standing in truth. As we abound in grace, the more we're going to be established in the truth of the Lord. And this is just a small sampling of what the grace of God brings in our life. We read in 2 Peter 3.18, a call to grow in grace, but grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but after reading just those seven things, that makes me say, well, how do I grow in grace? Do you want to grow in grace after hearing that list? Looks like most of you do. (laughs) Three things real quickly. Three simple verses Three instructions given to us of how to grow in grace. Number one, 1 Peter 5, 5, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself of the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. When we humble our hearts before the Lord, when we're honest before God, we're truthful before God, when we don't puff up our chest to make it about us, but we lift up our hands and we give him praise, we humble our hearts Listen, God gives grace. Revelation twenty two twenty one, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It's the last verse of the Bible. It's a prayer for grace. 
the grace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. I'm praying for the grace of God for you, John writes here. The grace of God be with you all. Amen. Let's pray and ask for more grace. What a wonderful thing to pray for. And then 2 Peter 1, 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The more we get to know our Lord, the more we know about our Lord, the more the grace of God will abound in our lives. Humble our hearts, we ask for grace, we get into the word of God. And so it says as well, he encouraged them, once he saw great grace, he encouraged them that with all purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. So in other words, he told them, listen, now it's time to buckle down and come what may continue with God. No matter what trials, tribulations, persecutions, temptations, blessings, prosperities, have a heart that says we put Jesus first, we won't waffle, we won't waver. If we fall, we'll rise again. Above all, we follow Jesus. He is our chief aim. And listen, we need to have that purpose of heart in this day that we are living in today. Listen, I know when I come out in the middle of a pandemic to a packed garden of people wanting to hear the word of God, there's some people that have purposed in their heart to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to give you a little insight. The weather is starting to change, as you guys know. And I don't know what fall is going to look like for us as a church. I don't know what winter is going to look like, but I know this that the leadership in this church has a purpose and heart that we're going to have church no matter what. And so we need to have that as a fellowship. The Lord's not on hiatus. He has not called the church to be on hiatus. And if it means eventually we have some tents out here with heaters and you show up to church and it's 49 degrees, are we going to have a purpose of heart to say, I can throw on a blanket and sit under that heater and come and worship the Lord because God has not called us to forsake the assembly of the brother. And by the way, the sanctuary will be open as well in there. So I'm going to give me one of those seats. Listen, I have a few examples of this in your notes. I don't have time to go because we talked about grace a little longer and that's okay. But think about Daniel, he purposed in his heart to follow the Lord as a young man in captivity. Think about Ruth when she followed Naomi out of Moab. She purposed in her heart, I'm going to follow the Lord. You're following God, I'm going to follow your God. And where you die, I'll die. I'm purposing in my heart, I'm going to follow the Lord. We need to get that mindset day in and day out. If we have a, well, we'll see what happens mindset, listen, defeat's going to come. When the mindset is, I will follow the Lord, come what may, that's where victorious Christian life abounds. It says about Barnabas who went down to him and rejoiced in these things and counseled them. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And so as Barnabas showed up, God multiplied the work all the more, and God worked through him as he was a man of faith and full of the Holy Spirit and listen, those weren't things manufactured by Barnabas, but those things came as Barnabas abided in the Lord Jesus Christ. You want more faith? You want to abound in the Holy Spirit? Get near Jesus Christ. Verse 25, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Here's Barnabas, again, 
He's there in Antioch, which is Turkey. Tarsus is also in Turkey. And Barnabas was saying, I need someone to help me with this. He knew Saul was nearby. And no doubt he must have also remembered the word that was given towards or about Saul in Acts 9.15, where the Lord said, he's my chosen vessel to bear my name to the Gentiles. I'm going to go get this man to come help me. And for a whole year, they discipled these Gentile believers in Antioch. Man, I would have loved to have been in that school for that year. And then they stepped back and they said, well, what do we call these guys? They're not Jews. What are they? Well, they follow Jesus. They follow Christ. They're Christ followers. We'll call them Christians. And then the Jews stepped back and they said, we're Christ followers too. Call us Christians as well. Isn't that a glorious thing? And here we are a few thousand years later on Portola Road. And what are we called? We're called Christians, followers of Christ. That's what a Christian is. A Christian isn't someone born in America. A Christian isn't, you know, a, a title that you just take on. A Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ. And to be a real Christian, you've got to be a born-again Christian. Well, I'm not one of them born-again Christians, then you're not a Christian. Because <laughs> to inherit the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And to follow Christ, you must be born again. And when we get born again, when we, get, we put our faith in Him. Verse 27, it says, And in those days prophets came to Jerusalem, to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So they sent prophets to Jerusalem. And listen, a prophet's uh, primary, primary uh, place is to proclaim the things of God or the word of God in power. We're all, we're all called to pray that we could prophesy. That's in 1 Corinthians 14. And that's a good thing. But there was also a man named Agabus who prophesied in the sense of foretelling a future event. And since he did it by the Holy Spirit, listen, it's an event that unfolded. When you have prophets rising up who say something will happen and it doesn't happen, that's called a false prophet prophesying by another spirit, not the Spirit of God. And we're told in Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22, you don't listen to that person. You check them off the list. There needs to be more of an accountability in the body of Christ when it comes to false prophets because they abound. But this man was a prophet of God. And the things that he prophesied about absolutely came about. He told them a great famine was going to come. And I love the response of these young Gentile believers in Antioch. It says, Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. And I love it. The response was a biblical response. Each according to their ability. Some had an ability to give more. Some had an ability to only give, you know what, a minimal amount because that's what they had. But what did they do? They didn't prep for themselves first. They didn't say, listen, a famine's coming Time for us to go into prepper mode. Let's stock up all this stuff for us. Let's run for the hills. But instead they said, we need to minister to our brothers in Judea, in Jerusalem. 
They understood they were indebted to them. They got the gospel because it started in Jerusalem. And they had a mindset of, let's put others first. I have a few scriptures about these things there in your text. Romans 15, 26, and 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 11, Where they recognized they ministered to our spiritual needs. Let's minister to their physical needs But more so, I just love the mindset in that let's prep by ministering to others, knowing God is going to take care of us. And in the day we're living in right now, where I don't think you need to be a prophet to understand that there's a lot of turmoil in our land, and come November, things might get really ugly. I don't think you're going out on a limb to prophesy about that. Let's make sure that we're walking in wisdom concerning those things. And let's make sure as well that if we're saying, I'm going to have a few extra things in my cabinets and in the cupboard and so forth, in the freezer, that it's not with a mindset, that's all for me and mine. But let me have this because it might give opportunity for me to minister to my neighbor, minister to my fellow brother and sister in the Lord, Maybe even to heap coals on the heads of my enemy. And let's remember, in all of it, the Lord always provides for his people. The psalmist said he's never seen the children of the righteous begging for bread. And let's remember that widow who had a little bit of uh, of meal and a little bit of oil who made cakes every day for Elijah. And she just said, we only got enough for us. We're going to eat it and we're going to die. And he said, well, listen. Make that for me. And the Lord provided for them day after day after day as she stepped out of faith. That's the God that we serve. And then finally it says, this they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So they made a collection there. And then they sent it by men that have been vetted, vetted men above reproach. This is just a practical scripture that reminds us we need accountability with church finances and so forth. They sent two men, again, vetted above reproach of good reputation, so they could be above reproach, not only before God, which they were, but before men, too, if accusation were to arise or something along those lines. And as as a, as a, a church body, we strive to do that in our fellowship, you know, and in, 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 in counting of tithe with multiple eyes on that and the collecting of it. And every year we do an audit that's available to anyone in the church that you know, tithes and gives offering. We want those things to be transparent and open. We want to be able to reproach before God and men in those things. That's a biblical call. It helps keep us on track. And those are things that, again, we should have an assurance that where we're giving that, those finances, they're being invested well and being taken care of to the glory of God. And listen, this is a place now, again, and next week we'll jump, we'll see Peter again, but there's a, a focus beginning to change to Saul and the gospel to the Gentiles. And it's just exciting the things that are, that are before us. So let's stand up right now. Let's close in prayer and worship of the Lord. And Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you for your word, your goodness to us, these scriptures. A lot of things we looked at here, God, in a text that kind of looks more transitional. Yet there's great meat, God, here before us today 
Lord, I pray we'd take these things to heart that we looked at. I pray we'd be found a people abounding in the grace of God. And if you're here today and you haven't called upon the name of the Lord, indeed today's the day of salvation, I can't encourage you enough to call upon Christ to receive the forgiveness of sin that's available only through Him and allow the Lord to come and bring His joy and bring times of refreshing that comes from His presence. If that's you, call on Him right now. Be honest with Him. Be truthful with Him. Call on Him in your own words. Ask Him to be your Lord and your Savior and He'll meet you where you're at. And I would encourage you, if that is you this morning, to share that with others. To tell folks you've put faith in Jesus. To profess Him before men and He'll confess you before the angels in heaven. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. Let us finish well, Lord, lifting our voices to you right now and giving you glory due your name. Let's worship the Lord.
Well, God bless you. Listen, we have about half an hour to the next service, so I encourage you to uh, encourage someone before you leave today and enjoy that Christian fellowship and pray you have a wonderful day in the Lord Jesus Christ.